If you're joining us here for the first time, you're new to Redeemer, or maybe just need a little refresher, uh, we have spent our summer looking at the books of First and Second Kings, two Old Testament history books. Uh, in particular, we've been looking at the lives of two of God's prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Now, the role of these two prophets was to come to the people of Israel in really a time of unprecedented, unparalleled uh, wickedness and idolatry and call them back to the Lord. Uh, God's people, as the hymn says, are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. Uh, and so God sends these two men, and they do mighty works, and they preach the word of God. And they call people back to the Lord. Um, the text we're looking at this morning is actually going to be the last text uh, in this series, uh, specifically from First and Second Kings. And we're going to see the death of Elisha. We're going to see this mighty man of God who did wonderful things. Uh, we're going to see him pass on uh, in a rather humble way, uh, but at the same time a very uh, exciting and great way. And we see that God used this man uh, just as much in his death as he did in his life. I'm a student of history, and one of the things I, I enjoy about history and I've really enjoyed about these passages and studying this week is there, there are sort of different levels of meaning when you study a text like this. So there are the events that are being recorded, um, the events that, have, that are happening, right? And those events have real meaning to the people in them and the time when they take place. And then there's the actual recording of those events, which in this case is many, many years removed from the events themselves. And so the author of these texts has an intent. He's writing this to God's people at a specific time for a specific purpose, namely, again, to call them back to the Lord um, as they're, they're in exile at this point for their sins. Uh, God has cast them out of the land of Israel they're in, uh, they're in Syria, and they're wondering, has God cast us off forever? And so the author writes this text to remind God's people he hasn't cast you off. Um, he is still for you, and he is still moving towards you. And then because this history is an inspired history, this is an inspired text written not just by men, but by God himself through the Holy Spirit, there's timeless truth here. There's truth for us here today. Uh, God's people many, many years removed from this, thousands of years removed, in fact, and I hope you've seen that this summer as we've worked through these texts, uh, and we'll see this morning in, in what is, by some accounts, a, a weird text. It's a little bizarre, some interesting stuff going on here, that it's relevant. It's relevant to your life here this morning, um, that God, uh, if he's so willing, will speak and move to us today. So let's go ahead and jump in here. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 13, starting in verse 10. This is also printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, so follow along with me as I read God's word. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastwards. 
and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the king was gracious to them, uh, the Lord was gracious to them, and had compassion on them, and he turned towards them, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that had been taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. That's God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning, for this Lord's Day uh, that we have to come together as your people. Uh, your people are gathered all over uh, this globe today, uh, celebrating you, worshiping you, remembering the work that you've done on our behalf in Jesus, looking forward expectantly to the works that you are still uh, going to do. Um, the goodness that you're still bringing into people's lives, the changes that you're affecting, and we thank you for that. God, I thank you for this opportunity to be here with God's people this morning in such a capacity. Um, truly, who, who is, who's equipped for such a task? Uh, nevertheless, um, I thank you for this opportunity, and I pray, Lord, that you would use the words that will come from my mouth, feeble though they may be, uh, to encourage your people, to challenge them, to comfort them. In the gospel of Jesus, I pray that they would have hearts that are soft and ears that are willing to hear. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I was driving to work one day this week, uh, Tuesday, I think, if you're into details. Um, and I was on Atlanta Highway down near the mall in the Publix that way, if you're familiar with the area. And I'm sitting in traffic, I'm sitting at a stoplight, pondering the deep things of life. And as I'm sitting there, the, the car behind me, and by car I mean gigantic military-grade SUV, uh, rolls into me, bumps into me. So I'm a little miffed. I'm also a little confused because this car and myself were both just sitting there. It wasn't as if this car had rolled up. It had been moving. It was just sitting stationary behind me. So I'm wondering, how, how has this happened? Why has this car run into me? Um, the light turns green, and I pull over to the side of the road. I realize I should have just stopped in the road now, but I pull over to the side, expecting this car to do the same thing, to pull over behind me. Uh, but instead, the tank mobile just takes off. Uh, this person did not stop, which is what I thought that they would do. So quickly, I get their, their tag number in case I need to involve the authorities in this. I walk around back behind my car. There's no damage, thankfully, um, surprisingly, because I think my car could have fit in the back seat of this car. Um, but there's no damage, but I'm still a little miffed, I'm still a little confused, uh, again, because this person didn't stop, and they should have stopped, right? Now, I don't know, maybe they had some great compelling reason why uh, they didn't stop, maybe they were on the way to save 
um, a child from a burning building, I don't know, maybe um, they were running contraband for the cartels, maybe because of all the armor plating on their car, they simply didn't feel that they had run into me. But they took off, and they did not meet their obligations and my expectations. And as I thought about this incident this week, and I thought about this text, uh, I started thinking about the expectations and the obligations that we all have towards one another. Society is built on this. It's built on expectations. Uh, Philosophers have often talked about this as a social contract, right? We give up certain rights to the state. The state protects us and does certain things for us. But all of our relationships, no matter how casual, uh, have these expectations and obligations. You have them of your family, your children, your friends. Some of them are very formal. You go to work and you agree to do a certain job for a certain amount of pay. Uh, They don't pay you what you think you deserve or you don't do what they think you're supposed to do and there's, there's problems, right? Um, Even very, very loose, informal relationships have these expectations. You hop in an elevator, somebody else hops in, and they stand right beside you. That's really weird, right? Um, People don't do that. It's not what's expected. So we have these expectations in all of our relationships. And we have expectations in our relationship with the Lord, too, don't we? Uh, We expect certain things from our God. And for many people, uh, these expectations are unfounded. Um, They expect things from God that isn't reasonable. Uh, People who even aren't believers have expectations from God. I have a a good friend who's an unbeliever. He's sort of a a militant evangelist for atheism. He really wants people who are Christians to not be Christians. And I was talking to him one day, and I said, hey, what's going to happen when when you die and you go stand before the judgment seat of God? And and you're really wrong. What do you think that's going to be like? What do you you expect from God in that situation? He said, well, I, I expect God will probably forgive me. It'll probably be okay. Because the mistakes I made, I made in earnest. I weighed the evidence, I evaluated what went on around me, and, and I was wrong. And, you know, God's, God's a forgiving individual. He'll forgive me. Um, now, in that circumstance, my friend has no basis for that expectation. Right? God has told us that we can come to him through Jesus, and that's it. Right? We don't get to come to God on our own terms. So that expectation is unfounded. But for God's people who do come to him through Christ, we have great expectations that he will forgive our sin, right? That he will move towards us. Um, We can expect that he will behave in ways that are consistent with who he is, with his holy character and the covenant that he's made with his people. So we have expectations of the Lord, and the Lord has expectations from us. And that's what I want to look at this morning in this text, uh, is God's great expectations for his people, right? God expects great things from us. And the first thing I want us to see about that is that these expectations should challenge us. They should stir us up. They should challenge us. And the second thing I want you to see is that not only should they challenge us, but they should bring us great comfort as well. So let's jump into our text here. Um, In verse 10, we meet a new player on the scene in Israel, um, King Joash. Now, this might be a little confusing. There's Joash, Jehoash, Jehoahaz. There's two Jeroboams. Um, I'm trying to make heads or tails of this. For our purposes right now, you just need to know that Joash, uh, the Jehoash we're going to be looking at in the bulk of our text, is actually the Jehoash in verse 10. There's two kings of Israel with the same names, and they both have alternate spellings. It's really confusing. But King Joash is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And what we get here in the first few uh, few verses is sort of a short summary of his life, an obituary almost. And we read that he began to reign in Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He had some fights with Amaziah, the king of Judah, and he died. So if that's your obituary, that's not, that's not super great, right? 
essentially you got a job, you did evil things, you got in some fights, and you died. If that's how you're remembered, shame on you. Um, so he did evil. And he did a particular kind of evil that is worth noting here and sets the context for the rest of our passage. And it says in verse 11 that he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now, at this point in time, Israel is a divided kingdom. There's northern and southern Israel. All right, this happened after the reign of Solomon. The kingdom divides uh, because of sin, actually. And Jeroboam is the first ruler of the northern kingdom. And he realizes that the people in his kingdom are going to have to return to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to worship God and to offer sacrifices in the way that God had commanded and ordained that they would. Being a thinking man, a man of action, he realizes, I can't let this happen. If the people have to return to the other kingdom to worship God, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be tending to, uh, again, align themselves with the southern kingdom and with the southern king. He's going to lose his kingdom. He's going to lose his power. He doesn't want that to happen. So he takes action. He builds in the northern kingdom two new centers of worship, one in Bethel, one in Dan. He institutes a new priesthood that looks very much like the Levitical priesthood. They offer all the sacrifices that the Levites offered. They keep all the same liturgical calendar, all the feasts and fast days and festivals. Um, it looks very much like worship in the southern kingdom, true worship of the true God, except for one very crucial, one very important difference. And that difference is this. He builds, in these two centers of worship, two uh, giant um, golden calves, very similar to the ones in Exodus. If you remember when Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron builds these calves, and he tells the people, these golden bulls, this is your God. This is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. So we have here a worship that looks very much like worship of the true God, true worship of the true God, uh, but it's false worship of a man-made God. This is not the true God. This is not the real God. This is idolatry. Now, this is kind of tricky, I think, uh, because this looks a little different than the kind of idolatry that King Ahab and Jezebel brought into Israel. Um, as we've seen over the summer, they brought in worship of a whole new God. This is purportedly worship of the true God, but it, it's not. Uh, and again, this is tricky. This is a half-hearted worship. This is a mingled worship. This is a false worship. Any attempt that we have to come to God on terms that we dictate, even if it's just to reinterpret Christianity to make it more convenient or palatable to other people, is false worship. It's idolatry. Uh, I might get in trouble when I say this, but this made me think of Thomas Jefferson, who was a great thinker. He did a lot of wonderful things for our country. Um, but he tried to make Christianity a little easier to understand, a little more palatable. And so there's this remarkable document. It's on display in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., called the Jefferson Bible. It's really fascinating. Essentially, he took the Gospels, and he literally cut out with some kind of exacto pen all the sections that he didn't like. These are the references to sin, to salvation, the deity of Christ, anything supernatural that didn't fit his enlightenment reasoning mentality, anything that he didn't like. Now, he did this. Um, his intentions weren't terrible. He wanted to make this religion more palatable to himself and others. But instead of making it easier, he created a false god, this false worship. All right. So here's our, here's our antagonist, Joash. Um, sort of a long introduction, but... Joash comes to Elisha, and we read in verse 14 that Elisha has fallen sick with the illness with which he's going to die. This great man of God 
uh, is getting ready to pass on. Elijah's an old man at this time, maybe 100 years or more. Uh, he's seen a lot of life. He's been faithful, and God has done wonderful things through him. But he's getting ready to die. And so Joash comes to him, mourning, weeping, wailing, lamenting the loss of this mighty man of God. And he cries out something, uh, a phrase that we've seen before a number of times in 2 Kings. He says in verse 14, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now this seems a bit odd, but when you think back to the two occurrences we've seen this before, it makes a little sense. These chariots um, came in and picked up Elijah when Elijah went on. Elijah didn't die. He was taken up into heaven by these chariots. Uh, and then we see again in 2 Kings that Tim preached on a few weeks ago. Uh, these, these chariots of Israel and its horsemen, they are essentially the might and the power. They're God's unseen army. They're the forces of good that God has to protect his people. And even though nobody else can really see these things, Elijah sees them. And his servant sees them. And because they know this, because they've uh, tapped into this, not, this deep knowledge of God essentially... Uh, they're able to single-handedly deliver Israel uh, in a great military victory without a drop of bloodshed. So this is the might of God that Elisha, that Elisha has tapped into here. And Joash knows this, okay? He knows that Elisha is his connection to the one true God. Now remember, Joash is not a true worshiper, okay? He's, by all accounts, a wicked idolater. But this is interesting that he laments and mourns this man's passing, even though he thinks Elisha may be a little off his rocker, he still sees the utility in a friendship uh, with this man of God. Now, as a sort of point of application, uh, think about that for a second. Do you have friends and family who may think you're crazy for what you believe, but do they still see the weight of your life? Do they still value your friendship, your relationship? Because there's something about you, even if they can't quite put their finger on it. Again, they might think you're crazy, but do they trust you with their kids? Do they want you around when things uh, go sour. Joash wanted this guy around. Again, it's only because he thought he was his connection to uh, the big guy upstairs, but he sees that this is about to go away. All right, so he laments this, he warns this, or he uh, mourns this. Um, and Elisha responds to Joash in an unusual way. Uh, he tells him to take a bow and arrows, which Joash does. Then he tells him to draw the bow, which he does. Uh, and Elisha then takes his hands and puts them on the king's hands. And he says, open the window eastward. He opens it, and Elisha says, shoot. And he shot. Uh, Elisha then sort of interprets this for him and for us, and we'll get more into this in a second, but he tells him that this is the Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you've made an end of them. You'll have victory, total victory over these people. Uh, he then tells him to take the remaining arrows and strike the ground with them. This is a word, a, a military word, a forceful word, a word of violence. He tells him to strike the ground with the remaining arrows. So Joash takes three arrows, strikes the ground with them, and stops. Elisha gets angry, raises his voice, he yells at him, and he says, you should have struck five or six times. For now you will only defeat the Syrians three times. You would have made a complete end of them. You would have totally annihilated this enemy of God. But now you'll only defeat them three times. Now this probably doesn't make much sense to many of us sitting here. We were talking about this in a staff meeting this week. And somebody was like, man, this is just weird. This is just a weird text. Um, it is a little weird. But even though this doesn't make any sense to us or much sense to us, this would have made sense to Joash. 
Uh, not many of us here are ancient uh, Near Easterns, but Joash was, and so this is a picture that he would have understood. This is an ancient image, essentially, of one king's military victory over another. We see similar things in uh, ancient Egyptian literature and drawings, Babylonian as well. So this is a picture of military victory. It's a picture of military prowess. And Elisha adds a little something more to it. He puts his hands on Joash's hands, and he tells them, this arrow that you're going to shoot, this ritual, this thing that we're doing here, it's about something that God is doing, that God will do. These arrows are arrows of victory. They symbolize God's victory over his people. You're going to shoot the arrow, but it's God's power that's at work here. You're going to have to go fight these battles, but it's God who will give you the victory. Man's agency, God's power. And if we think about it, isn't this exactly what the Christian life is all about? I'm not talking about justification here. I'm not talking about how we're made right with God. We're going to get to that in a second. But the Christian life, after you've come to Christ by grace through faith, God's at work in our lives, right? That's one of our primary presuppositions here at Redeemer, that God's at work in the lives of his people. He's at work in this church. But we still have to be at work, right? We still have to continue to believe the promises. We still have to move forward in faith and obedience. If you remember our New Testament reading this morning, the reason I chose that is there's this great little line where Paul tells the Philippians They need to work out their salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in them. It's his pleasure. It's his work to do this. It's his power, but they still have to go and work, right? God's at work in us, and he wants to do great things. He expects that great things will be done, and we still have to go do them. Let me just make a a brief illustration of how this might work. Very simple illustration, um, but I think it's powerful. People... Uh, people have said this to me, I, I want to know, know God more. I want to experience the Lord, right? I want to know more about who he is. And I think God wants that, right? I think God wants us to know, know him more, to love him more. If the greatest commandment is to love him um, with all that we are, we have to know and to love him, right? Uh, and people pray for these mystic experiences. They want signs and wonders and glittery glory clouds and all manner of things. But um, what about your... Bible reading plan, right? It's not very glorious, it's not very glamorous, but you will really get to know God more if you do that, right? Now, God could show up in a glory cloud in your house. Um, I don't think that he will, but he could. But ordinarily, God's going to work through your Bible reading plan, right? It's not fancy, but that's often how God works, right? Uh, I read recently that they have determined there are 18 um, unreached tribes in the Amazon, tribes that have had no contact with the outside civilized world, right? God wants to take his gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? Probably God's going to do that by people going down there to these villages, right? It's the power of God that converts sinners, but we go in that power, right? How can they believe if they don't hear, right? How can they hear if we don't preach? Now, there's an element of mystery to this, right? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. We don't have time to get uh, too deeply into that right now, but I think suffice it to say, um, to quote John Larson, that uh, God has absolutely foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and much depends on us, right? God expects great things, and he wants us to go do them. So that should challenge us, right? If we know that, that should challenge us. So what about Joash? God had great expectations for Joash. He had promised him this great victory over the enemies of God, 
And again, Joash, Joash understood this. So why doesn't he empty the quiver? Why doesn't he live up to these expectations that God had for him? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us why, but I'd like to venture a few options here. Uh, the first is that there is some level of misunderstanding, right? Joash didn't quite get what was going on here. And again, I think that's unlikely. God is not ambiguous. Um, God is not vague. If there are things about God's word we don't understand, um, and there are some things that are difficult to understand in the scriptures, there are things that are really hard to swallow, right? Things that we kind of don't want to understand, and that may have been the case, a sort of willful misunderstanding. Another option is just the simple lack of faith in God's promise. He underestimated the power of God to do this work. Uh, the period of time where this takes place, Israel is in a particularly weak state militarily. Um, if you go back to the beginning of chapter uh, 13, you'll see that their chariots had been decimated, their horsemen had been decimated, um, their foot soldiers were few, much fewer than they had ever been. So Israel's not in a place where, humanly speaking, they can really take over, they can really dominate the Syrians, right? So Joash might look at this and say, this is what I've got to work with here, God can't really do that, right? So a lack of faith, underestimating God's power. Another option, uh, complacency. He was just sort of okay with the status quo. He didn't really want more than three victories. If you keep reading uh, in verse 25, we see that the three victories that he does have, uh, he regains three cities that his father had lost to the Assyrians. So he kind of just evened things back up the way they were before. Right? He's just okay with sort of maintaining the status quo. He's complacent. So those are some options, possibly why Joash didn't uh, live up to these expectations. But what about us here today, right? The Bible is full of many precious and great promises about the work that God desires to do on and through his people, and we often don't live up to these expectations. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, um, these expectations don't necessarily apply to you, but you should ask yourself now, why don't you live up to the expectations you have for yourself? Something to think about. So, if we're honest, uh, we need to consider that we're probably a little like Joash. Uh, it's possible that we're a little misunderstanding. Uh, again, I think the Bible is not super hard to understand, but there are things that, are, that we don't want to understand, right? Things that are hard to swallow. And being wrong uh, isn't necessarily a sin, but willfully perverting or ignoring the truth that God has revealed is. And whenever we twist things to meet our own agenda, that really gets us in trouble, right? So, are you doing that? I think there are places where I've done that in my life. I know God says this, but I don't really, I don't really want to do that, right? If I misunderstand, I didn't get it. Um, where are we unbelieving? What do you think God can't really do in your life so you don't ask? Or maybe you've quit asking. You've quit partic participating in. Maybe your kids are a nightmare. Maybe your marriage is a mess. It's cold lifeless, loveless, you just kind of coexist. You never dream of getting a divorce because that wouldn't look good, but you're just sort of, you know, you don't think God's going to fix that. He hasn't, so he probably won't. Maybe you think about um, you want to be part of something big and exciting that God's doing here in the world. Maybe you just want to be a better, more faithful witness for the kingdom of God where you work, where you go to school, where you hang out. Uh, but you think, God can't really use somebody like me. Man, I'm so screwed up. You are, but that's okay. We'll get to that. God can't use me. Right? God can't do this. 
you have a relative, a loved one um, that you would really, I experienced this this week, someone in your life that you love dearly, that you want to see God do great things in their life, but you haven't seen it. So you stop praying. You kind of forget about it. What about here in Athens? What about here at Redeemer? Um, the very fact that we're sitting in this room right now and the school's back here is just kind of a pipe dream, right? Uh, humanly speaking, there's no reason why we should be here. But people thought God can do this, right? I think God wants to do this. So they gave of themselves. They gave in prayer. They gave their time. They gave their resources, and they made that happen, right? So where are you unbelieving? What do you think God can't do? What about complacency? Where are you complacent? Where are you just okay with the status quo in your life? What about sins in your life? What about idolatry? What about addictions that we have? There's junk in your life. You know it's there. You know it's not supposed to be there. But you're kind of okay with it. Uh, There's a book that came out a while back called Respectable Sins. There are some sins that we just don't think are that bad. Maybe it's worldliness. It's covetousness. It's greed. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. Um, but you're just kind of okay with the sin in your life. Or maybe there's a certain level of sin in your life that you're okay with. Maybe you're okay with flying off the handle at your spouse or your children angrily, sinfully. It doesn't happen all the time, right? It's not that big of a deal, you think. Um, you don't think God thinks it's probably that big of a deal. You're really sorry after it happens, right? But you're not striving to put that to death. It doesn't bother you in the way Jesus said it should bother you, that you should, if it was your hand, cut it off. Just kind of complacent. What about sexual immorality? What about pornography? It's not that big a deal. You don't do it that often. Nobody knows about it, right? Um, You don't think it's hurting anybody. I'm going to borrow an illustration from, uh, we went to a high school youth conference a couple weeks back, RYM. It's a lot like the RUF conference. It's really wonderful experience. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see this story firsthand, but it comes, it comes uh, through good sources. There was a young boy who uh, had a sinus infection. His parents took him to the doctor to try to figure out what was going on. They gave him some medicine. He went home, took the medicine. Things got worse, not better. They took him back to the doctor. They gave him a different medicine. He went back home. Things got worse, not better. They took him back to the doctor. They did a CAT scan. And what they found inside this little boy's sinus cavity was this elaborate and growing root system, right? Uh, And apparently he had stuck a bean or a seed or something, very little, very small up his nose, as children are wont to do. Usually it's a Lego. It's not a big deal, usually, right? But in this case, if this had gone on, it would have got up into this child's brain cavity, his cranium. Could have killed him, right? Now, sin is like that. Maybe you think it's not a big deal, but it'll kill you. It'll kill your family. It will. All right? Uh, John Owen famously said, be killing sinner. It will be killing you. All right? So what are you complacent in? What are you just kind of okay with? You know it's not great. You know it shouldn't be there. But you don't think it's that big of a deal. Now, to be fair, to be honest, your marriage may never be what you want it to be. All right? God may never save that loved one that you prayed for earnestly. God may never turn Athens upside down the way that we would like him to. But if we don't participate, right, if there's not some buy-in on our part, if we're not praying for Aunt Betty, if we're not killing sin in our lives, we're not moving forward, I'm pretty sure God won't do those things. God can do whatever he wants to do, right? Everything that's in accordance with who he is. 
But ordinarily, God works when we work. So I think there's great reason to be challenged by that, right? My life isn't the way it should be. This town isn't the way it should be. Um, and we have an awesome, an awesome uh, role to play in shaking those things up. So God's expectations for us should challenge us. They should also comfort us. So let's take a, less, uh, a look at the rest of our text quickly uh, and see, see where we see that. So if we look down at verse 20, we see Elisha, this great man of God, is passed on. Right? Funeral without pomp, without circumstance. Unlike Elijah, who had this great ceremony, uh, this wonderful thing that happened. There were these chariots and horsemen, and he was taken up. It was a big deal. Uh, Elijah goes on quietly. And evil has crept into the land. These Moabites were a people that were essentially uh, mostly not an issue throughout much of Israel, Israel's history, but they're, they're creeping into the land. Right? The Assyrians have come and dominated. The Moabites are sneaking in and pecking at what they can get. And so some friends are burying uh, a friend of theirs, and they see one of these bands of Moabites coming. They freak out, and they chuck their buddy into Elisha's grave. Now, it may help as you're trying to visualize this uh, to understand that their graves were not like our graves. They weren't buried six feet underground. This is more like a mausoleum or sepulcher kind of thing. It's cut into the rock, so they could have easily tossed him in there. Multiple people were probably buried uh, in this grave. And they chuck their friend in there, they cast him in there, and as soon as he touches the remains of Elisha, he jumps back to life. He was dead, and now he's alive. Probably a little confused, right? Just like his friends. I don't know what's going on. So this text had uh, a deep meaning for these ancient people we won't get uh, into right now for time's sake. But you remember earlier I talked about the different levels of meaning that God's word has. So this speaks powerfully into our life here today. We see here the death of God's prophet brings life to this man. Well, God has sent a greater prophet, and that greater prophet is Jesus. And Jesus brings life through his death to all who come to him, who all who cast themselves upon him. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, this is comforting for you. Uh, because guess what? This dead guy, it's you. All right? You're the dead guy. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. Now, what do you think God expects from a dead guy? Can a dead man make himself alive? Do you think God expected this guy to do better and try harder and claw himself up from the decay of death into life? He didn't. And that's you. And just like there was nothing this guy could have done to, brought to bring himself to life, there's nothing you can do to bring yourself to God. You can't try harder. You can't do better. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to the Lord. Now, this man's friends cast him upon Elisha. You must cast yourself upon Christ. It's his life, it's his death that has earned, that has earned your salvation. But if you're a believer here this morning, there's also a lot of comfort for you here in this text. Because even though God has great expectations for us, he knows that we won't always live up to those. He knows that we'll fail, he knows that we'll sin. In verse 22, it says, the people of Israel were oppressed all the days of Jehoahaz. Now, sometimes you feel oppressed, right? You feel depressed, you feel unloved, you feel unworthy because of failures, sins in your life, maybe the sins of others against you. Maybe sometimes even if you're moving forward, you're doing all the things you need to do to pursue Jesus and pursue others, you still feel that way. Because that's the nature of life in a fallen world. The world we live in is broken, right? You can do all the right stuff. And, and still feel this oppression, and still be sinned against, 
can still have pain and hurt in your life. And we shouldn't be surprised at that, Peter tells us. But when we feel this oppression from the world, we feel the weight of our own sins, uh, we're tempted, I think, the same way the Israelites were tempted here, to wonder if God has abandoned us, if God really loves us that much, or if he's even there at all. And maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe you feel alone. You feel oppressed, unworthy, unloved. Uh, you, don't, you don't know if he's there. You don't know if he can hear you. But God hadn't moved away from his people then, and he hasn't moved away from them now. Look at verse 23, at how the text says that God deals with his people when they're feeling the weight of oppression. It says he's gracious to them. He has compassion on them, and he turns towards them. Now, even though we don't feel this way experientially all the time, it's so important, so important, that we as children of God believe this, that we tell it to ourselves, we rehearse this truth, Augustine said that we must believe that we may understand. We must believe that the love that God has for his people is not based on our good deeds or our misdeeds, our ability to live up to his expectations, because he knows that we're not going to. But look at what it says that his compassion is based on. In verse 23, it says he moved towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now there's this beautiful picture of God's covenant of grace in Genesis 15. This covenant he makes with Abraham. He tells Abraham, go and take these animals, these livestock, in, and slaughter them and cut them in half. And he tells them to lay these animals out, their pieces side by side. And he tells them, well, that what this is, this is an ancient covenant ceremony between uh, a mightier king and a lesser king. They would do this ceremony, they'd cut these animals up, and they would both walk between them. And they would say something to the effect of, may it be so to me and more also. If I don't keep my end of the deal. In other words, if I make a covenant with you and I don't keep it, you can do to me what we did to these animals. All right. So Abraham does this. He lays these animals out. He sits around for a little while. The animals are getting stinky. They're rotten. Right? They're decaying. And Abraham falls asleep. Now while Abraham's asleep, uh, something pretty remarkable happens. This, this sort of flaming pot, this theophany, this manifestation of God's presence comes and walks in between the animal pieces. Abraham doesn't walk through. He's asleep. He's not doing anything. All right? But God comes, and God keeps the covenant. God says, may it be to me, and more also, if, if you don't keep the deal that we've made. Now, this is the gospel. We don't keep the covenant. We don't live up to our end of the deal. And God, in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, came and took upon himself our covenant curses. Everything that we deserve for our sins, he took upon himself. He became a curse as he hung on the tree for his people. Um, quickly, and then I'll be done. I remember when I first came to Redeemer a few years ago, I remember the first time I had a coffee date with Hal. I don't think anybody ever forgets the first time they met Hal. Um, a remarkable individual. But I sat down in his office and kind of leaned back and he looked at me. I don't know anything about this guy. And he says, you know what I know about you? Well, you're worse than you think. And I'm like, what's he know? <laughs> um, but because of Christ, you are so loved. And this is an old uh, Jack Miller saying. You may have heard this. You've been around the church for a while. But you're worse than you think. And because of Christ, you are so loved. It's been said that to be truly known and not loved 
is our greatest fear. But to be truly known and truly loved is the greatest comfort. Believer, God knows you. He knows your sins. He knows your failures. He knows the you that you don't want anybody else to know. Not the Facebook you, not the Instagram you, not the Twitter you, not the best possible you, right, that you want other people to know. He knows the real you, who's broken and alone and needy. He knows you intimately, and he loves you intimately, and he demonstrates that love to you in the death of his son, who was cast off so that you might be brought near. So would you come near this morning? Would you come to Christ? If you're a believer, you're not a believer, you need the same thing. Uh, you, need, you need to come to Jesus, and he will turn towards you with mercy and compassion.